BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. From KQED. It's going to take a lot to make sure the thousands of people living on Bay Area streets right now are safe during this pandemic. I mean, just this week, we found out that two people tested positive for COVID-19 in San Francisco's largest homeless shelter. And homeless advocates say the help is coming way too slowly. Can't stay clean. There's no social distancing in camps because you have an encampment. It's getting to a point where desperation sitting in and nothing's happening. There's a lot of pressure right now to get people living on the streets into safe places to live, like empty hotel rooms, especially in cities with huge populations like San Francisco. But getting into a safe shelter depends on where you live, how sick you are, and who you know. I'm Devin Kadiyama. Welcome to the Bay. Melissa Moore had been living in a camp in Castro Valley uh, by the river. She had it was sort of a camp community there. She said there was about 40 people. Erin Baldessari is a reporter with KQED's Housing Affordability Desk. And uh, last fall, Caltrans went out to clear the encampment. And since then, she's been an activist. And now we're out on the street, and I don't know understand where they thought we were to go, just disappear. That's when I started my advocacy, is last October. Since this coronavirus broke out, she's really been working with folks to get food to camp communities in San Leandro, Hayward, um, the communities that she's a part of, um, as well as supplies and just trying to spread word of the virus and give people information. They do know there's a pandemic. I told them what it's about. You know, I told them how, how it's spreading through the country. And some of them get the news, but not very many. She has a bicycle. She doesn't have a car anymore. So she rides around on her bicycle and works with St. Vincent de Paul and other groups to bring food to folks. You know, she acknowledges that she does get close to people and and she is kind of putting herself at risk. And she tries to keep as much distance as she can. But in some cases, you just can't you just can't social distance yourself when you're in an encampment uh, because people are in kind of tight spaces. And so sometimes you have to meet people where they are. There are many others at camp that are starting to develop symptoms. Could be the flu, could be a cold, could be COVID, could be bronchitis. I don't know. We don't know. People who are living in tents, in cars, and RVs are already more likely to have underlying health conditions. We know that at least 25%, probably closer to a third, um, have some kind of chronic health condition. The immune systems are, are, like I said, compromised just from being outdoors for so long. Whether it's a common cold or a flu. Their diet is poor. They're dehydrated. When you don't have access to clean water or, you know, clean bathrooms, it can be a lot harder to practice the CDC guidelines of washing your hands every, you know, every chance that you can. It's a prime breeding ground for this pandemic to start through them. 
March was the month when the number of confirmed cases really started to increase. That's when everything changed. So the state began to figure out how to do something it really had never done before. Find shelter for tens of thousands of vulnerable people who don't have a permanent place to live. When did cities or even the state first start talking about housing people experiencing homelessness because of what was happening with COVID-19? The least I can remember is mid-March when the governor uh, announced the lease of two hotels in Oakland. Some 108,000 unsheltered homeless in the state, 151,000 in our last point in time account. Those were the first two leases that were signed by the state. Since then, he said on Friday that that they've signed leases for nearly 7,000 hotel rooms across the state. The whole idea of the hotel motel uh, contributions at $50 million is about bringing people inside uh, with a door, a key, and a lock uh, with as much supportive service as we can provide under the circumstances. That's a lot of hotel rooms. Yeah. The goal is 15000 So at this point, is the goal to get everyone who doesn't have shelter into shelter? Uh, not exactly. Basically, what the state has said is its priority is to first focus on folks who have COVID-19, who've tested positive, or are showing symptoms and are awaiting test results. Number two priority is to shelter folks who are high risk. So these are elderly, people with underlying health conditions, sort of demonstrated chronic illnesses. FEMA is only reimbursing money for those two groups. So people who have the coronavirus or have been exposed to it, uh, and those who have underlying health conditions. If you're a relatively healthy person who's living outside, you're probably not going to get a hotel room. So hotel rooms are for some of the most vulnerable people right now. But there's also not really much space for those already in shelters to physically distance themselves from each other. That's why cities and counties want to open up other kinds of spaces to safely shelter in. There are RVs in Santa Clara County. They're opening up the fairgrounds to create a a temporary shelter in San Francisco. They've opened Moscone Center West uh, as a temporary shelter. Um, And so these are sort of the alternative sites that that we're seeing right now. Obviously, we're not just talking about existing shelters, but places that weren't being used before, like hotels. How are state and local governments allowed to do this? Like, it's not just government seizing property, it's actually signing leases. But what what needs to happen in order for that to happen? I think the governor's state of emergency and the various states of emergencies that the counties declared um, have allowed them to access additional funding. One of the big uh, reasons, you know, they said they weren't able to do this in the past was that, you know, they didn't have the funding in order to do that. And then how are they getting people from the street to the shelter? Are they picking people up and driving them to the shelter one by one? Um, pretty much, yes. That's an incredible, I mean, that's that's an incredible task. Yeah, which is part of the reason why I think you're seeing a slow rollout is because in order to keep staff safe, they have to transport them in a safe manner. So I know that in Alameda County, for example, they've rented um the shuttles that they use um, to shuttle people from the airport. And they've retro, you know, sort of retrofitted them with a partition to separate the passenger from the driver um, in order to give the driver space and also a, a sort of plastic sheet in between them. Um, 
and that, so that they can clean the vehicles in between each each ride. And they're really relying on service providers to identify one folks who um, have tested positive for COVID nineteen uh, or are waiting at test results um, but are showing symptoms, and then also to identify people who are high risk. It's not really clear how different local governments decide who gets to go to a hotel versus other kinds of shelters. Yes, hotels are for vulnerable people, but Aaron says it can be on a case-by-case basis, and it really helps if you're already connected to a nonprofit or service provider. So if you're not, that means it can be really difficult to get help and information to people who need it. So, for example, I talked to one man, Joe Pendleton, in Berkeley, who lives out of his van. He's a three-tour veteran of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. So my background is a U.S. Army combat medic. And he does outreach in his communities in Berkeley. Getting tents, putting in hand wash stations, obtaining food from evangelical groups and delivering it to people that have nowhere to go and get it. That's been my day. He's similar to Melissa Moore, who's sort of just a, a free agent, an, an ad hoc activist who, who goes around and, and does what he can and tries to connect people to services and provide them resources. But he doesn't have uh, you know, a line into the county. So it's harder for him to say, hey, I know someone who needs assistance than it is for, say, folks at the Lifelong Medical Center, which is working directly with the county to place people. I don't know of anybody that is living on the streets that's spoken to anybody from the city. Like a lot of other um, people who are providing outreach, folks are are scared. They don't have um, a lot of information. Um, they have heard about these hotels. They want to get into them, but they don't know how. There's that underlying, uh, nobody's telling us anything, they're not doing anything, what's going on? Do you get a sense that, that people who are experiencing homelessness feel safer at these hotels or in these shelters where the cities, that the cities are providing? What I've heard from advocates for people experiencing homelessness is that they would like to see everyone in hotel rooms. That would be the safest, most preferred option. You have your own room. You have a a lock on your door. It's a lot more comfortable than the shelters. There hasn't been a lot of positive feedback from uh, facilities like the Moscone Center West that opened up, you know, which was basically called a giant warehouse you can imagine it's it's a giant area with these, you know, fluorescent overhead lights and absolutely zero privacy. And so I don't think that people who people see that as an improvement. It sounds like so hotels are probably the safest type of shelter. Yeah, but they also require the most staffing. It requires counties to really rethink how they operate uh, a facility Um So you have a lot of considerations you have to think about when you're bringing people into hotel rooms, especially if you want them to quarantine and isolate. You have to think about, okay, do they have pets and how are we going to accommodate their pets? You know, why would someone want to leave and how can we anticipate those needs? These are little things that might make people want to leave the hotel rooms. And then 
harder for the staff to keep track of them because the staff is trying to assure that not a lot of people are interacting with each other in the hallways or elevators. For some folks, even the hotel rooms are not an ideal solution because they've been mistreated by institutions, because institutions have failed them in the past. They may be skeptical of going into a hotel room. They may not be able to bring all of their belongings. Um, and so they may not, they may feel like they may, they may not be able to get those belongings when they leave or have to leave them, you know, on the street or something. Um, so there's no guarantee that they're there when they get back. Um, so there's a lot of distrust of, of these institutional measures just to begin with because, you know, people who are experiencing homelessness, institutions have already failed them. What do you think this pandemic's revealed about the resources that were already there for people experiencing homelessness in the Bay Area? It's laid bare all of our social inequities that were already existing before. So people who were vulnerable before are now more vulnerable. People who didn't have a lot of resources now have fewer resources. And I think when we come out of this crisis, what we're going to see is that we're in an economic crisis where those inequalities are exacerbated. I hope that this is a wake-up call, that we see that housing is healthcare, that housing is fundamental to our well-being and is a fundamental aspect in terms of getting people into jobs, into education, into just improving their own wellness, whether it's dealing with addiction or a chronic illness. Um, In order to get well, you have to have a stable place to live, to reside, a roof over your head, some warmth. I I hope this is a wake-up call to address housing in order to close the gaps in the inequalities that we're seeing. So far, we know of at least one person living in the Bay Area who was unsheltered and died because of COVID-19, which is why faith-based leaders from Faith in Action Bay Area plan to hold another vigil on Zoom, like the one from a couple weeks ago. May we who are merely inconvenienced by sheltering in place remember those whose lives are at stake. May we who have no risk factors remember those who are most vulnerable. Santa Clara County announced last week that everyone experiencing homelessness who's tested positive for COVID-19 in the county now has temporary shelter. Erin Baldessari reports for KQED's Housing Affordability Desk. To see her reporting and other updates on COVID-19, please go to our website, kqed.org. There's all kinds of good information that's changing every single day. The Bay is produced by Erica Cruz Guevara and our editor, Alan Montecilio. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it for us. We'll talk to you Friday. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. 
Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.